for professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 707, welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Welcome back, Josh. Hello, Dan. Great to be back. And uh, we have our guests in this evening, uh, Michael Darwish, from uh, owner of Bonavista Fabrics uh, for more than 40 years. He's been in the textile industry. Uh, so, Michael, welcome to CJD. Thank you. So, tell us uh, first a bit about perhaps uh, um, what Bonavista does and, and how you've managed to stay in the business for so long in a, in a very competitive industry. Uh, Bonavista is an importer and manufacturer of curtains and cushions and throws, home deck, home deck products. But I actually haven't been in business that long. I've only been three years. I bought the business three years ago. Uh, before that, I was in a clothing business for most of my life. Started around 17 and till around 2004 when uh, just, you know, just collapsed. Everything ended. 17, does that mean you you skipped the schooling part or you, you felt you had to go into it? What made you start at 17? Well, my father was giving me $7 allowance per week, so it just <laughs> wasn't enough for me. And uh, I realized schooling wasn't for me. I wanted to get into business, so I started right away. and started doing some T-shirts and things like this, and then I joined my father's business. And your father's business at the time was doing what exactly? My father had a small business doing uh, mostly blouses, uh, manufacturing blouses for Canadian retailers. So you you start with your father's business, and I know there's a lot of generational issues that come into play. Did you start at the ground level? Like how how quick was the the ride up, so to speak? Uh, it wasn't very fast. I started off carrying samples around by bus to uh, <laughs> Montreal retailers, and then from that I ended up you know going get a car loan, bought a car, and started doing more and more on my own that way. And at what point did you? get to that, hey, dad, or, you know, I, I want to be a partner. I want to be your partner. I want to be part of this business. I want to make it my own. Well, at, when I first started at 17, I started doing uh, T-shirts for, like, restaurants, uh, Mike's Submarine, anything like this. We would sell T-shirts, and I started selling manufacturing T-shirts to sell to the um, tourist industry. Uh, from that, I started working for my dad, and my dad and I were working well together, and he had a partner at the time, so we decided that it would be best just the two of us to go on, so we bought out his partner, which was his uncle, my uncle, his father, his brother. Was that a difficult transition? Was it difficult to say, hey, unc, you know, or, or hey, brother, uh, we don't necessarily want to keep you in, or is it time to move on, or, you know, it, was that a difficult transition? Yeah, it was a long time ago, but I remember it wasn't, it wasn't comfortable, but it wasn't done in any, there was no spirit, no mean spirit done in it, and it was just... It just had to, you know, he had a son also that wanted to be in business. So we were too many for her. It was a very small business. And did your role change drastically after that point? Well, I was always in sales, but then, you know, when you become an owner, you, you get more involved in other aspects of the business. You get involved in the buying, and then, you know, you're looking at the numbers all the time. You look at your margins. So, yeah, you learn everything. Did you always know, I mean, you know, you talk about margins, and, you know, there's entrepreneurs that really fly by the seat of their pants, and some of them are in you know, sales more or not, but numbers play a very important role and not everybody kind of grasps that. Is that something you, you, that you, that Michael, you grasped from the get-go or did you learn that along the way? You learn very quickly because, you know, if you don't know numbers and you're selling, you can end up selling, you know, no margins and you're not in business too long. So you learn quite quickly, or I did anyway. Is that something that you had to push somebody to learn or did you learn the hard way? Did you like sell something? You said, oh my goodness, I can't believe it just went out the door and I lost money. No, my father actually taught me all that. 
he said this is you know the margins we have to work on and so y you learn quickly i mean you, you can go get orders all day and if you don't have any margin it's not going to do you any good was he then watching over you and was yeah. it was it a comfortable situation i mean you, you guys said you got along so i just want to oh it was very comfortable we got along very very well uh you know he when he when he left the companies because he his health uh, was was failing so he had to leave at the time but before that we got along very well and when when i guess i don't know i'm not sure of the time frame maybe you can kind of elaborate on like you know at what age these things transpire and if you had to really learn quickly or not uh but then at what age were you when your dad i guess kind of took a step back for his health purposes and and how did that change your style well, I, I learned quickly going back because I got married at 23 and had children. So you learn, you grow up very quickly. <laughs> um, but then my dad retired about 20 some odd. He was 59 and he would have been 85 today or 84 around there. So you, you, you learn quickly when you're young in your 20s. And, you, and you know, if you're supporting a family, you, just, you have to. You have no choice. Do the employees look at you differently as you kind of move up or it's you know it's it's daddy's son and but he's the owner and he's got he's got these ideas and he's very uh, he's got a vision uh did that change your role or your should i say your relationship with any of the key people in the business no i was it was a small business there weren't that many people but i was quite energetic so it wasn't uh, it wasn't like a, a boss employee relationship i don't think i've ever had that so what would you say your, your style is from a management or dealing with, with human resources? Well, you're dealing with people. You know, if you, if you look down to people, they're not going to perform. So you try and, and um, be friends with them. Not, not be friends with them, but you work with them. And then, I, I mean, I, I know you work with them, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's tough to sometimes draw that line. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs say, I really, you know, some don't want to let go, and others have this, you know, I'm going to be friends with them, they're going to be my best productivity people, and they're going to really go at it. But, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm going to invite them over for dinner sometimes, and I'm going to go have a drink with them sometimes, and I'm going to get buddy-buddy. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. H has this philosophy kind of worked with you throughout your career? Have you ever kind of been disappointed, or it's really been a good way to go for you? Well, you become close with people. You see them every day. You see them more than some of your family. So it's it's hard. The hardest hard part is when people leave. And, you know, you've worked with them for 10, 12, 15 years, and then they leave. I mean, I understand. They have to move on. They have dreams and aspirations, as I do also. When I have to let someone go, it's a terrible, terrible day. It's not, it's not a fun thing to do. Uh, I can imagine not, especially after working with somebody. I mean, as if you've been in the business for many years, I presume you're, some of your people have been with you for a long time. Uh, not anymore because I closed my business in 2004 5 around there so everybody around now is they're all new everybody that I work with our guest this evening on today's entrepreneur is Michael Darwish owner of Bonavista Fabrics uh, we'll take a quick break and uh, come right back if you have any uh, questions for Michael 514-790-0991 or start talk star 8255 on Bell Mobility CJD time is coming up to 715 for professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 718 on CJAD. Welcome back to today's entrepreneur. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar along with Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. And our guest this evening, Michael Darwish of Bonavista Fabrics. And Michael, being in the, in the fabric business, I guess it's, it's fair to say that you do lots of, of work abroad? Yes, uh, 
right now we do. We used to be everything domestically, but not anymore. Uh, we deal in China mostly now. Did you always happen to deal in China, or were there kind of uh, spots along the way? I mean, you've been in the business for about 40 years. Uh, you weren't in China 40 years ago. No, I wish I was, actually. Here. I really do. But uh, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was very hard to get involved in China. There were quotas on everything, and it was a difficult situation. So we were bringing fabrics and have the fabrics and all the trimmings and everything shipped to Guatemala. And then we'd sew in Guatemala and then bring them up from there to Montreal. Was that, a, was that an easy experience, Guatemala? I don't hear too many people in Guatemala these days. No, I don't <laughs> recommend it. But it's, uh, it's, it's a learning experience for sure. We've, we had our, our pitfalls. We had people you know, holding fabric and not giving it to us and little things like that. But other than that, it's, it's, you learn a lot. You really, really learn a lot. And then when you go to China, you see how professional they are. And they're very, very good at what they do. Is it? But there certainly is a language barrier, and uh, I guess getting to the the exact specs and the exact design that have to be so precise when you're around the world or halfway around the world. How do you how do you manage that? How did you get over that? Well, there's not really a language barrier anymore because all the people that you're working with, all are university grads, and they're all they're young, educated, and they speak semi good English. Um, the owners are the ones, the older ones, the the generation, say my generation over there are the ones that don't speak English, but they hire very good people, and they're, they're very good at what they do. They're professional, they have they have systems for everything, and basically they train you to work to their systems. Is it important to be on the ground, or can you really do it remotely? Oh, you can easily do it remotely. You have to go over, I mean, we go over, we send somebody over once, twice a year, but just for design ideas and to develop styles. But you could you could manage all your production and everything very easily from here because they're not even at the factory they're at an office and the factory is in a third location so it's 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 manageable and would have you found your experience with your chinese suppliers to be stable i mean have you changed often or have you really been able to stick with one group or, or a few key suppliers you try not to change because it takes a year to develop the proper system so you're working back and forth together uh, otherwise, you're adding about a month to delivery with a new system, with a new supplier anyway, because you, there's so many changes, so many things they don't know what you want and you don't know what they want. But So you try and stick to your suppliers as much as you can. But you're always looking for new products, so you're always adding. Have you found dealing with China has changed over the years? Has it gotten a little easier, a little different? Have you been more specific or less specific? It's How has it changed? It's much easier to deal with them now. I mean, the, everybody there has email, everybody has, uh, they, they understand what you're talking about. I mean, just go to the, you go to the Canton Fair and it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. You know, 16 buildings of, uh, you know, 2 million square feet of building. It's, it's amazing. But it's a little bit overwhelming. I mean, how do you pick and choose? How do you, how do you find that needle in the haystack of who you want to do business with? Well, you don't buy when you're there. That's the first rule. You sample. Uh, then you go back to your hotel or you, you come back to, to Montreal and you ask them all to send samples and you have a plan. You say, okay, I want to cover these looks, these colors. And then you, you work it down from 150 samples to 35. Have there ever been a country that you've tried to do business with and that didn't work as well as China did perhaps? I'm constantly trying to do business with India, but I'm really having a hard time. Uh, I just find I can't, can never get the product sent properly. It's a difficult situation in India for me. Other people do more in China, in India than China, but for me, it's difficult. 
but it's certainly not a language barrier. I mean, certainly there, English is, is more predominant than China, even. Uh, I don't find it a language barrier. I find it an honesty problem, but that's me. <laughs> Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD at 723. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants, and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 725 on CJ80. Welcome back to today's entrepreneur. Our guest this evening is Michael Darwish from Bonavista Fabrics. Dan, when I hear about importing and distribution and I hear about China and all the manufacturing that's happening overseas, I can't help think about foreign exchange. I mean, the dollar has changed drastically in the last eight years, where in 2003 it was hovering around $1.60 Canadian for every US dollar. Uh, today we're close to par, or even just under it. And to manage that roller coaster along the way for importers and distributors is an absolute miracle sometimes that they have to what they have to produce. Michael, I'd love to hear how you were able to manage that fluctuation along the way. Well, I learned over over the years that trying to speculate and um, hope that the dollar gets better or you know you can make uh, money on currency is not the way to do. It. I'm not a currency trader. Uh, once we, I did build up my loans in U.S. hoping that the dollar would get better, but I ended up getting burnt in the end. So now what we do is we just buy futures against all our orders or I see what I'm going to go through for the next year and cover ourselves so we know where we stand. Uh, when the dollar goes south, yeah, you are, you're taking a beating on everything you're doing, but now with the dollar better, you seem to do, the, the it's okay, it covers, but with China raising their prices and everything that's going on over there also and uh, freight doubling, the, the offset on the dollar has been offset by the Chinese price increases and by transportation costs. Have you been using futures or buying, you know, dealing with the foreign exchange in the same way for a long time? Or is this something more recent? It's more recent, past couple of years. Uh, it's just not worth the risk anymore. Uh, the dollar can go, and God knows why it moves. I have no idea, so it, it hurts. And that, I, that's really, I guess, one change in, in industry, and certainly in many industries, has been the dollar. But I would presume that also dealing with the big box stores, because you sell to retailers, you sell to big box, uh, and we're talking about China, that has certainly changed the landscape as well. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, when, when I in the clothing business, I had you know, 15 accounts, and then one was buying the other, was buying the other. At the end, we had two accounts left. So it's a very you're in a very difficult position, especially if you don't have a brand. We were a private branded, and then in the end, the big box retailer got to do what I do a lot better. They started importing themselves. They were my biggest competition. So it was just unless you have a brand, you really have, you're at their mercy all the time. Uh, you know, it, le it leads me to a to a, a very popular question that I ask: If there's anything you would have done differently uh, as an entrepreneur, what you know today, and you were to look back at your younger self. What would you have done way back when? What would you have done differently? I would have definitely tried to build a brand. It's not an easy thing to do. It's expensive, and it, it's, it's a very long, grueling road. But it is, is the way to go for a brand because then they have their budgets. So the stores have their budget to buy, and you know, you're know you aligned on the budget, whereas you're in with everybody else if you're unbranded. What exactly does it take to build a brand? Time and money and advertising. And just getting the public to know your your names out there. They, is it is it really about just pushing, pushing, pushing the same product or the same image all the time? Well, ideally, you want to be known as like instead of asking for a tissue, you ask for a Kleenex. That's a brand, and that's the same thing when it comes to anything else. 
So it's really just, uh, you know, and th this is a lesson uh, that entrepreneurs, uh, some haven't learned and some learn the hard way and some realize it, but don't necessarily have the resources to do it. It's actually amazing. And the, the Kleenex uh, analogy is quite something. It's like Q-tips. What do you do when you take, want to take cotton swab? You take a Q-tip. But it's pushing, pushing, pushing. And it's, but it does require a lot of time and a lot of dollars and a lot of effort and a lot of vision and a lot of perseverance. And when you combine all those together, you certainly create the capital E entrepreneur, but it takes all those things to make sure that that brand gets done. Coming Patience. up, we'll uh, speak to uh, uh, Nick Moretis about um, the aspects of buying a business, because uh, Michael Darwish, of course, is uh, someone who recently bought a business, so we'll talk about the complications and some of the speed bumps along the way. Today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, continues in a moment. <laughs> For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.32, welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller, our guest this evening, Michael Darwish from Bonavista Fabrics, and we bring into the conversation a Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau as well. Welcome back, Nick. Good evening. And uh, Michael, when you recently bought uh, Bonavista Fabrics, um, when, at what point did you decide that buying a business was a better way to go than starting from scratch? And tell me about um, the process of buying a business for you. Well, in 2004, when I realized that the business uh, I was in was, was disappearing, um, I closed it up and I started a small home deck. We were doing uh, cushions just for one big box retailer um, and it, it's just it's a very long process to do to build a business so I started looking and it took about uh, three years I used two business brokers and they were looking and they came to me actually quite often with different businesses some of them not related to the one I was in and uh, you look you look at the numbers and then you uh, you know you make it a letter of intent if you want if you like the business is it difficult? I mean, if you're if you're really looking to buy something and you're anxious to get your your feedback into the game, is it difficult to look at it a, with a really objective viewpoint and say, "Hey, no, it's really not for me." Do you have to do you have to have the patience to say, "It's not my time yet"? Yeah, you do, and you also have all my friends are in business for themselves, so it's it's very useful because you go to them and you ask them, "What do you think of this?" And then they'll bring up pitfalls or things that you maybe didn't see. So sometimes you are in a rush to do it, but you have to really take your time and, and, and wait for the right opportunity. Are, you, you mentioned your, your peers and friends, and uh, I don't want to get off the, the buying of a business, but do they play an important role when, in any business decision that you have? I mean, do you use your, your network of contacts or your professionals frequently? I don't have a partner, so yeah, I, I rely on friends a lot. If you have a partner, you have a group of partners, then you can discuss things among them. But uh, when you don't have it, if you're a sole business owner, you have to, to go to somebody. It's either professional or to your friends. And since my friends were in business and they were successful, I went to them. So let's come back to the buying of a business. You, you've gone through maybe a few different ones that, yes, you had a, an LOI, which is a letter of intent. And you say, I'm interested, but, you know, these things have to happen. What, ha what happened when you got to the Bonavista? Well, when Bonavista was presented to me, it was the first business that I was presented with that actually the owner was retiring, and it was a successful, profitable business. So um, they, they were brought to me, it was brought to me by the, uh, the brokers, and I looked at the numbers, and I realized that this, could, this is a viable business, and I could adapt quite easily, because your learning curve is also a very big 
uh, factor in what you're buying. If you could buy something in like a radio station, I know nothing about. But something like this, it was fabric, so it was easier to learn. Um, so then you, you sit down with the professionals, you, you make sure you get a good lawyer and a good accountant, and they don't bury you with fees, and then you um, go forward from there. It's all well-spent money, I'm sure. Is there something that, like a specific lesson that you learned? Like what was the most important aspect that you would look for or that you, you figured you relied on when you're buying that business? Well, a lot of the things that you look for in a business are uh, your customer base. Is your customer base, you know, narrowed down to two, three customers, or do you have 2,000 accounts? That's uh, a lot more comfortable when you're buying a business that has many accounts. You're not reliant on one person. So that was one of the criteria I had. Um, another one was I didn't want to have to compete against the retailer selling them the same thing that they imported on their own. So that was an important factor, too. Your due diligence, is this something that, uh, I mean, it's important for everybody, but were you, uh, you know, these aspects that you went through, do you really, do you roll up your sleeves and get into it, or did you rely on others for it? No, I had I had a couple of people working for me at the time uh, that was helping run the little cushion business I had, and so especially one person, uh, Marie-José, was very involved with me. She was my uh, accountant at the, at the office, and she helped me look at the numbers and helped me did uh, cash flows and Everything that I had to prepare for the bank, she was very instrumental. Now, when you bought the business, Bonavista, did you buy shares of the business or did you buy the assets? Bought the assets. I didn't want to have anything to do with the 35, 40 years that he owned the business. So now I'm going to turn to Nick and say, hey, Nick, Mr. Tax Guru that you are, uh, tell us a little bit, you know, the difference uh, and, you know, the challenges and what entrepreneurs really have to keep in mind when they're looking at, hey, do I buy the shares of this company or do I buy the assets? <clears throat> well, for tax, um, there's, a, there's many advantages, advantages, and not only the not buying the 40 years of history. Um, if I wanted to buy a CJD, for example, I, I can buy the microphones, the tables, the computers. The, we're not for sale, are we? No, no, we're okay, not. Everything that we see here. Um, and I'll pay for the price of, of what it is to run this business. And, and in tax... Uh, when you're buying an asset of this nature and you're paying a large amount, uh, you can have a, a, a depreciation, we call it, and that saves you taxes. Uh, whereas if I'm buying a company and I'm buying the shares of that company, I can buy CJED Inc., for example. Um, the fact that you bought this table 30 years ago uh, is, is not going to help me anything. So uh, one of the tax disadvantages of buying shares um, is that, that you cannot get into the assets right away. So from, uh, from someone buying... Uh, like Michael, as you mentioned, uh, the shares is usually what we tend to recommend. Uh, sorry, assets, assets is what we, we recommend. And I, I guess part of it has to do with skeletons in the closet. Uh, you know, as Michael alluded to before, yeah. you never know what what you're buying in business, and certainly from tax tax aspects. If, oh. as we know that, uh, as we know that, the lovely, you know, our governments they like to come in and audit and check numbers, uh, even from when before you actually own the business. So that's a factor as well. Absolutely, um, and it usually becomes a discussion point in negotiations uh, to uh, provide uh, or where the uh, sellers providing warranties as to what happens if you are buying shares, because if uh, if the company is audited after you buy the company for things that happened years before you were even involved, uh, you're the owner. You're going to be the one who has to pay. So unless there was a guarantee from the seller that says, well, I'll cover that, should that happen, uh, you're on the hook. What can 
an owner entrepreneur do? I mean, there's only so much due diligence, I guess. I mean, what should they look for when, I guess, buying this company? Well, that's all part of that due diligence process. Uh, the due diligence is just not, not only tax. Uh, it, it does cover financial aspects. It does cover operational affect, uh, aspects as well. The tax, obviously, is most important from a tax person. Uh, but you are looking at what have they done in the past in terms of the income tax, uh, uh, payroll taxes, sales taxes. Have they filed everything that they needed to file in the past? Uh, was there ever an audit in the past? What did they find? Did they stop doing what it was bad and, and, and start doing what was good? Uh, you're looking at the history, and you're trying to get an assessment as to, well, if the audit happened today, what would be found and what could possibly be contentious? And then you, uh, you apply a risk factor to that. And it may lead to, as I said, the guarantees. It may lead to saying, we have a significant risk. We're not going to pay you all the funds up front. We're going to hold back uh, amounts in escrow, and we'll wait to see if, the, if we ever get audited if this becomes an issue. Now, this is something, th this, this, these are issues when you buy the shares of a company. If you're buying the assets, um, is there any risk that the government could come back and say, hey, you're take because you've taken over the name of the company, is there any risk that they can come back and, and associate any problems? Um, not if everything was at arm's length and if everything was fair market value and you're just acquiring the, uh, the assets, the, the, the intellectual property, etc., there shouldn't be a flow over to the new company that you've started off and, and went on. Separate corporation. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Now, Michael, before you said you were, you were fortunate when buying this company, you, you found somebody that was looking to retire. But I guess that's not the case with all owners and not the case with all employees for that matter. So there, I'm sure there's other pitfalls or, or areas that, that also have to, be, have to be looked after. Like if you have uh, a company with, uh, with say, that uh, human resource people that, that have these contracts, uh, this is something I guess you also look into. Well, when, when you, even if you're not buying the shares, if you're operating the same business that you were doing before, you still are responsible for any severances and so on and so forth on employees. That The employee doesn't end. I mean, it doesn't go from one corporation to the other. Otherwise, people will be doing that all the time and ending people's seniorities. Uh, so you are responsible for uh, severance packages or anybody that you, know, you, you feel you have to let go. And Nick, if, if a seller of the business... Uh, you're, you're, you're buying a business, Michael is buying his business, Bonavista, and the owner you know, wants to stay on for a transition and he has asked for this employment contract. Are there different aspects to, like uh, different wordings of employment contract and how it may be considered, uh, you know, whether it's actual employment, could it be considered as part of the, 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 the sale price of the business? Uh, well, there, there, there's a lot of stuff. Um, Many owners, uh, the sellers, would be looking, uh, well, sorry, let's go back. The, a buyer would want, uh, in many cases, that the uh, previous owner hang around, uh, do the transition with clients, do the transition with, uh, transition with processes and employees. It's usually to everybody's advantage. How long is open to, dis to discussion? Um, whether it's through an employment agreement, that is uh, for a defined period of time, uh, because the, the previous owner is under your control, that would be fine. Sometimes it could be a consulting agreement because the intervention is much more ad hoc. It's uh, on an occasion basis, and, and the previous owner is the one who decides. And uh, but at the end of the day, uh, once the previous owner is out of this, out of there, there's usually non-competes. Uh, there's non-solicitation agreements which come in, which give the owner um, uh, issues to think about and to plan with his advisors. Uh, but that's some of the uh, issues they usually come in with. Uh, 
Michael, did you sit down with the, the long-standing key people when you bought Bonavista just to kind of get a feel for them? Sure, you meet everybody. You have to sit down and have a discussion with everybody. Everybody actually wrote me a little letter saying what they do, just like a, like a CV. And you go through all everything. And then actually one of the fellows from your firm was, uh, was their auditor. And he advised me, he says, Mike, don't make any changes for the first year. Just live with it, see how it's going. And then you can make your decisions as, as you're going from there. And it was good advice. Did the, uh, did the former owner stay on for a little bit to ease the transition? Uh, he's, uh, he still has an office there. He's not involved in day-to-day at all. Actually, he's in Florida. Uh, but he, he still comes in, and sometimes I go into him and talk to him, and sometimes he comes and says, you know, I like that item you have there that's new. It's nice. But it's a different situation when someone's retiring as to when someone is just selling to do something else. Was that important to you for the owner, the guy with the knowledge for the, with the business for the last few decades? Was that important for you to him for him to stay on for a bit? It was as a comfort level for the first little while, but then after a little while, it didn't. It was just he was a nice fellow, and it was nice to see him. And other than that, he really hasn't said anything or done anything in the past little while. But he's nice to have there. I think you know you're you're very fortunate to have somebody that's willing to pass on and and transition the information. Uh, I can't say that every entrepreneur is as successful in finding that seller that's willing to, you know, either not cling on with their clutches for dear life uh, or sabotage any of the business. So I think that's something that the owners have to try and do their best to do diligence on when they're looking to buy a company. Today's Entrepreneur continues in a moment with guests Michael Darwish, owner of Bonavista Fabrics, and Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau, 745 on CJD. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Our guests also from Fuller Landau, Nick Moretis, tax partner, and Michael Darwish, owner of Bonavista Fabrics. Um, and we're talking about how to how to take over business, how to buy a business with that, with uh, reducing the amount of uh, pitfalls uh, possible. One issue, Nick, uh, that comes up a lot is is debt. How do we, how do you, how can you help navigate uh, that that terrain? Well, it becomes very important because what you're trying to do is match um, the interest that you're going to be paying back the bank with the profits that are being earned. You hope from the business you just bought. And if you're not careful, uh, and because the rules are not black and white, uh, you may find yourself in the unfortunate position that you got interest being paid from your right pocket, not giving you any tax deductions, whereas your profit is being earned in your left pocket. And all of a sudden, uh, from your perspective, your costs just went uh, much higher because you got to find after-tax money. And your banker usually will be very, very disappointed, and it becomes very important to them. So in in many of the purchases, um, you're looking to make sure that where is it that I'm borrowing, and who is it who's borrowing, and, and where is my profits coming from? So we get into st- uh, uh, structures um, to match the two together uh, so that if you made $100 profit, you can pay your uh, interest and then pay your taxes. And that becomes very important. So what you're trying to say is you really want to c- try and keep uh, the pluses and minuses all in the same basket. Oh, absolutely. And the uh, simplest of examples, uh, I want to go, and if I can continue buying out CJD, I decide to go to the bank uh, and borrow the money under my name to buy out CJD Inc., and let's say I'm, I'm buying out the shares. Okay, so I'm now paying the bank interest out of my checking account, but the profits are in CJD. 
So for me to take out the profits out of CJD to my name to pay back the interest and the bank would like me to pay down the loan, I have to pay tax, which is mean we're not integrating everything together. Is there a formula, some way of, of uh, knowing that a business you're about to buy has too much debt, that, that they, they've crossed that line and it becomes undesirable? They, they will, they will, Josh and I can both answer that. Yes, there is, and, and that's a lot of it that comes from the due diligence. That comes a lot from uh, just looking at the assets available. Uh, can we leverage these assets? And discussing with a bank, here's what I will be buying, and this is what it's going to look like with all the debt. And, and the banker can say, well, uh, no, that's not going to happen, or yes, we're comfortable with that, absolutely. There's certain, uh, I guess, uh, you know, bankers, depending on the financial institution, they have certain ratios uh, that that businesses should operate within, certain boundaries that businesses should operate within, uh, certainly from a borrowing standpoint, from an operational standpoint. And the reality is when you're buying, the general rule is when you're buying a business, you're buying a business so that it can operate the next day. If it cannot operate the next day because it's too debt-ridden, well then, A, the price is wrong, and B is, why am I buying this business? Absolutely. So, Nick, uh, th there there are certainly other ways that, you know, when people buy businesses, I mean, what are the other factors that people should consider? Uh, one other factor, uh, we're in, we're talking about private businesses, family businesses as well. Who should the owners be? Um, and, Michael, in your case, you're the, you're the sole. Uh, My family trust. That's I a, right. I open so a trust. There you go. Uh, he just answered. So should it be the, the individual doing behind the buying? Should it be a family trust, as you uh, set up, Michael? Should it be... Um, uh, if, if you don't want to go through the family trust, should it be the children if they're old enough, etc.? And if you're making that decision at the beginning, well, that saves you the cost of having to do it down the road and it sets you up properly. But that's something that should be looked at at the time of purchase. Today's entrepreneur, uh, in the remaining moments, will uh, we'll continue to talk about how to uh, effectively make that transition uh, from prospective business buyer to, to owner. It's a 7.53 on CJ80. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Remaining moments on today's Entrepreneur with guests Michael Darwish from Bonavista Fabrics and Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau. So Nick, any last uh, bits of advice for uh, the person that's buying a business? Um, some businessmen uh, look to purchase companies with losses. Um, figuring that the losses would, uh, they would incorporate the company into their existing entities and save taxes going down the road. Um, that is, that could be very, very bad. Uh, there's very strict rules about buying companies with losses. It doesn't always work. You got to be in the same business and, and, and really got to do your due diligence before you start doing that. We're only buying companies with profits, so no well, Michael, problem with Michael that. Did that. And so Michael did that. And Michael did that. Michael, as, as we come to the end of the show, uh, and as we heard your, your wonderful story of the last 40 years, is there any one piece of advice that you would give to today's entrepreneur as they start out in business? 40 years, it's a long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, just, if you're, if you're working for someone else now and then you're, and you're considering buying a business, just be prepared that it's, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's everything. It's day, night, when you're on vacation, when you're sleeping, it, it never ends. You're always thinking, you get up in the middle of the night, you're sending emails, um, you're thinking of different things. And then another thing is to um, the staff. Staff is so important. When you're buying a business, uh, the staff is the business. The customers are the business. And do your due diligence on the, on the staff and the customer base. And that, those are the most important things. 
and as uh, and as I hear uh, everybody talking for the last hour and 40 years and it becomes your life perseverance is the one word that stands out in this conversation and with any entrepreneur that's out there today it's you got to stick with it you got to stick with your guns believe in yourself and and it is a lifestyle Michael very well put it becomes very much a lifestyle you eat you breathe you drink you live you work perseverance makes today's entrepreneur Michael Darworth from Bonavista Fabrics and Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you, John. And, and uh, thank you, Josh. We'll see you back here next Monday at uh, at nine p- at seven p.m. rather. And you can visit uh, Fuller Landau during business hours at. Uh, at uh, www.flmontreal.com or call them at uh, 514-875-2865. Delmar at Night is next on CJ80.